Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, open to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, or you can uh, follow along on version. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, you know, we are starting a new series this morning, uh, going through the book of Galatians. And the title of this series is Standing on, on God's Grace, Standing on the grace of God. And, you know, it's interesting. This this letter is being written to a church that is kind of in a struggle. They're, they're in a struggle with the legalism of the past the, that they lived in in the past and the grace that that God has given to them through His Son. And, you know, grace is such an amazing thing. You know, grace, this unmerited favor from God that that we don't deserve. It's this gift from God that we do not deserve. And and it's such an important thing to remember what it is that God has done for us to give us this grace, to pour this grace out on us. And yet, in a lot of ways, we are like these churches that we'll read about in Galatians that struggle with God's grace. The truth is, a lot of times we say we are thankful for the grace of God and we praise the grace of God and yet too often we live as though we have forgotten about God's grace. And so we're starting this new series this morning looking looking at God's grace and what He's done for us. And as we look at what these churches were going through and the struggle that they were facing, we can find some things from their struggle that, that we can take and we can apply to our lives. And so we're going to start this morning in Galatians 1. And it's very interesting. Galatians 1 starts right with the problem. Galatians 1 throws us right into the situation that they're struggling with. Galatians 1 throws us right in to what is going to be covered throughout this book, this struggle. This struggle between the legalism that they were in and the grace that had been given to them. And this morning as we read through Galatians 1, I think we can find a couple of things that, that we need to be worried about and concerned about in our churches today. And so we're going to start in Galatians 1 in, in the first two verses. And it starts like this. It says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. So, upon first reading this text, you might think this sounds very familiar. If you've read any of the Pauline epistles, you would say this sounds very familiar because here Paul starts out like he always does, letting the audience know who he is. This is who's writing this letter. He gives us and the people he's addressing to the churches in Galatia. And in verse 3, we'll see that he gives a little uh, statement of, of grace and praise. But you see, there's something missing here upon inspection, something that is different than a lot of all the other letters that Paul writes. And you, you see, there's not the traditional expression of thanksgiving and praise for the believers he's writing to. 
He doesn't start by saying, praise be to you believers who are, are persevering, enduring. He doesn't start with, a, a, I'm thankful for what you're doing. No, he starts out right at the beginning, diving right into the task that really is the first two chapters of this book. We see here from the beginning that Paul is going to have to spend some time defending his authority. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's starting here having to give defense to who he is because there were people who believed that this man was not really an apostle. You see, he didn't have the authority to speak on the things that he was speaking. Peter, he was an apostle. John, he was an apostle. However, Paul was not an apostle. We know all about the life of the Apostle Paul. He didn't have the authority to speak on the matters in which he spoke. I mean, look at Acts chapter 1. He didn't meet the qualifications. He wasn't there when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. He wasn't there at the resurrection. He doesn't fit the qualifications to be an apostle. And yet, we've gone through the book of Acts and we know who Paul is. We know his story. And we know... Whom has appointed him? Jesus Christ has appointed him to the position he's in and has given him the authority to speak on the things in which he will speak and teach on the things he will teach. And we'll read more about what Paul has to say that when we get to verse 11. But we know that Paul has the authority. And so he starts by saying, I have the authority. I'm not sent by men or a certain man, but by Jesus and God the Father who raised him to proclaim this message. And he's with the brothers and sisters. Who are these brothers and sisters? Well, perhaps Barnabas is one of the brothers that he's mentioning. Likely, some of the the people that he ministered to in Antioch in Acts 13 would be with him. And he's writing this letter to the churches in Galatia. So who is he writing to in Galatia? Well, it's likely here when it says that he's writing to the churches in Galatia. He's writing to the churches that were founded on his first missionary journey. It would include places like Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Poseidon Antioch. And so these are the people that he are writing, or he's writing to. And then we move into verses 3 through 5. And it says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul here ends his beginning salutations with a reminder, a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. He has gone to the cross, who gave Himself up voluntarily to go to the cross to die for us, to die for our sins. And God the Father who raised Him from the dead according to His will so that He would receive glory forever and ever. He went to the cross and He died for us. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 say, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Titus 2.14, 
talking about Christ says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And lastly, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. Grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But why does he end his intro like this? It's very, very strange that he would, he would start this letter by, you know, not strange, but it's different. He would start his letter by addressing, and he has a purpose for this, this time. And, and what is it? What is his purpose for stating who Jesus is and what it is he's done for us? Well, we get to that in verses 6 and 7. And it says, I'm astounded that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And so in verses 6 and 7, we see the reason why he brings up who Jesus is and what he has done for us by starting to remind people or to let people know he is astonished at what has taken place. People are starting to turn away from the gospel that they have heard and are starting to turn towards a false gospel that's not really even a gospel at all. We see that they're starting to quickly desert God. The word translated here as deserting, it's related to the idea of a military desertion. It's a swift desertion. They are turning quickly away from what has been preached. And the thing is, the sad truth is, they were not just turning away theologically. It wasn't just a, they were starting to have different opinions of what has been, te- or have been taught. But they're starting to turn fully away from the God of grace. They're turning away from God. And I love how Moises Silva words it. He says, He does not mean by that, however, a merely intellectual change. Their action is personal. They are, in fact, abandoning the one who graciously called them to himself. You see, the people were starting to turn back to this legalism that they had been part of in the past and away from freedom that came through Christ. And they didn't reach out to to Paul, their spiritual father. They didn't reach out to the Holy Spirit and lean on Him for understanding. No, they started to be led astray. And so what's the cause of the problem here. Well, the cause of the problem is the Judaizers, these Jewish believers who were going around preaching a false gospel that was works over grace. And we read about them in Acts 15, verse 24. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. Acts 20, 29 through 30 also says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. These people are coming up and they're, they're trying to pull them back into the legalism that they had just come out of. And they're confusing the people and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. 
Wiersbe points out that this word translated perverted in verse 7, it's used only three times in the New Testament. And it means to turn about or to change into an opposite character. It could also be translated to mean to reverse. So really, at its core, these Judaizers are reversing the gospel and turning it back to law over grace. And we know what their message was, if you recall reading in the book of Acts. Hey, we believe in the same thing you believe. The only thing is, you have to be circumcised in uh, the law of Moses in order to be saved, Gentiles. And the problem was, if this was the case, and the work of Christ wasn't enough. The death on the cross, the resurrection, it wasn't enough. But people were starting to be perverted and starting to turn away. And then in verse 8 and 9, Paul is going to use a, a little bit of a metaphor, a little bit of a, a hypothetical situation to uh, talk about the seriousness of this. In verse 8, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, and so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Pretty powerful statement here from Paul. If you were to see an angel come down from heaven, and that angel started to preach something to you different than the message that you have heard from, from me or, or from any of these apostles, if you hear a different message they would be under God's curse. If I came to you and preached anything differently than what you have heard, church, I would be under God's curse. This is what Paul is saying. What does this phrase mean? Under God's curse. The word for this is a strong word, and the word is anthema. And anthema is a word that refers to God's own curse. And this word in the NIV is translated as let him be eternally condemned. Eternally condemned. If we are preaching something that is opposite of the gospel that you have heard, let us be eternally condemned. Very powerful phrase there. 1 Corinthians 12.3, we see this word used. It says, therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. If you're hearing people say, Jesus be cursed, eternally condemned, know that that is not true. But then listen to this. This is a very powerful statement. 1 Corinthians 16.22, this word is used in this passage, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. If you do not love the Lord, if you do not give your life to Him, when that time comes, when your life is over, if you've never given your life to Him, you will stand there and are eternally condemned. Powerful phrasing, powerful word used there. And then Paul reiterates his point. If anybody is preaching a gospel that is different than the true gospel that he has preached, they will be under the curse of God, eternally condemned. Powerful words. If you're hearing anybody say anything different than the gospel that has been presented to you, 
let them be eternally condemned. The apostles, Paul especially, they don't mess around with this false gospel, this false thing that is going around, bringing people away from freedom in Christ, the grace that Christ has given to, the, or to them. They don't mess around with that. And so how does this relate to us? How do these verses relate to us? Well, it would serve us well to remember that there is one true gospel The Word of God in which we have in our Scriptures in front of us, the true Gospel message. There is one true Gospel. And that Gospel is the fact that God came to earth. Jesus Christ came to earth. Died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. Three days later, rose from the grave. And there is nothing that we can do to fix our brokenness, to fix our problems. It requires us putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That is the one true gospel. But you see, here's the problem. Today, there seem to be many gospels out there that are tricking us and confusing us and leading people astray. Now, I want to just be completely honest here with you this morning and say you may disagree with some of the things I'm about to say. And if that's the case, I would encourage you to talk with me. I'd love to talk with you about it. But the truth is there are fake gospels, false gospels out there that are confusing us, tricking us, and leading many in the church astray. Examples of this. Well, there's a prosperity gospel that's going around The idea that to follow Jesus means to make you healthy and rich. There's problems with this. One, it's inconsistent with Scripture. To say that the Bible will make you, or to follow Jesus will make you healthy and wealthy is simply not found in Scripture. A matter of fact, Scripture tells us that there is tribulation, that there are trials, that there is moments of suffering, that there are moments of pain. To follow Jesus does not mean that your life will always be healthy and you will always be wealthy. No. Sometimes there are trials. There's suffering. Look at the story of the apostles. Every one of them die horribly. Except for John, and that wasn't for lack of trying. There's believers in Scripture who are poor, who have no money, who rely on their brothers and sisters to help them live life. Another problem with this prosperity gospel that we hear is it switches our focus off of what we can do for God and rather on what can God do for us. What can we get if we follow God? What can we gain if we follow God? If I follow after you, God, you better give me something good. God is kind of like our cosmic ATM. And honestly, this goes, this very idea of a prosperity gospel goes against the way that Jesus and the apostles lived. Jesus and the apostles, they traveled from place to place doing ministry. And Jesus even said he has no place to lay his head. And so this prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It is a not true gospel. It goes against Scripture. And do I believe that God can bless us? Yes, I do. 
But I believe our blessings that God gives us are meant to turn around and to bless others. A call to be stewards, good stewards with what we have been given. And see, here's the thing. The reason I have a problem with this prosperity gospel is because it takes away the fact that what Jesus has done for us is enough. It's enough. Everything that God has done for us is enough. If all He ever did was send His Son for us, then that's enough. Whether we are healthy or we are struggling with our health, God is enough. Whether we have tons or we have nothing, God is still enough for us. God is more important than all of that. And it's not about what can God give to me. It's about what can we do for Him. And I think Paul puts it in its proper context in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In its proper place, yes, God can bless us, And we take that and we bless others. But it's never at the expense of this is more important. If you you don't have wealth, if you don't have the greatest of health in this way, it's not because your faith is lacking. It's because more than being wealthy or healthy, God calls us to be holy. And what's interesting is that there seems to be those who go in the complete opposite into the complete opposite extreme of this and believe that if you're healthy or wealthy, then you are doing things wrong. God calls us to be a little bit sick because it helps us to lean on Him. God calls us to be poor because it helps us to lean on Him. And this is an actual belief going out there that if we are not living a life of poverty, if our priori- or then that would mean our priorities are simply wrong. And I know the Scripture that a lot of people tend to use. Didn't Jesus tell this rich man to give up everything and follow Him? He's talking to a man who loved his possessions more than anything. You see... I don't believe we're called, not all are called to give up everything. And if you feel like you're called to give up everything to follow Him wherever, that's amazing. Do it. But not every person is called to live that life. Again, Paul puts it in its proper context in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. This goes along with the last thing we talked about. If God is blessing you, you're to use that blessing to bless others, to give to others. Just like the apostles. The apostles in the church, what did they do? They got support so that they could do ministry. What did the early church do? They sold their possessions and gave to make sure that everyone had what they needed. It's all about giving to one another, blessing one another. Another thing that's kind of started to creep into the church, it's this and what I'm about to say is a mouthful, and so you might be, huh, what, what does that mean? Like, I'm just warning you, I'll give you an abbreviation. There's a, a belief going around called moralistic therapeutic deism. Like, yeah, that is a mouthful. MTD for short, there you go. What is this? What is this MTD, this therapeutic deism? Well, this was first coined by sociologist Christian Smith and Melina Lundquist Denton. 
and they wrote about this in their 2005 book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And so what they did is they did a lot of research and they compiled it down and identified these predominant beliefs of American teenagers that claimed to be Christian. And they came up with five core beliefs. And these are their five core beliefs. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. There is a God. It could be any God. You could have a God. I could have a God. A God exists. And this God, number two, wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. We are called to love one another. But here's how things start to fall apart here. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. I don't know about you, I'm not always happy. I don't always feel good about myself. And I feel like our desire is not to be just good and happy with oneself, but to again be holy. For the Lord your God is holy. We are to be holy. It's not about being happy. It is about being holy. And God, number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. God is your genie. You don't need God all the time. Just when something is going bad and you need to turn to God, then He is there to resolve your problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. There's one name on which man must be saved. It is Jesus Christ. There's a problem with this belief of MTD. And there's many more that I could go into, and there's many lies that I could go into that the church struggles with today. Examples, I don't need the church to be a Christian. I don't need to attend. I don't need to be around a body of believers. I can do everything on my own. Jesus never called us to that. We're called to continue meeting with one another to encourage one another, to build one another up, I find it intriguing that he sent out his servants in groups of two. And there's even some lies today that our political opinions should focus or should be what fixes our biblical worldview and not the other way around. It's our biblical worldview that should influence our politics, not the other way around. And so, why do I mention all of these things? Well, we need to understand these things because so many of these things are creeping into our lives and they're not truth. Anything that is works over grace is not accurate. Anything that puts things above Christ and His death and His resurrection are not accurate. Any religion that teaches that it is self over Christ and what He has done is not accurate. And we know that these things are out there because we know that there are false teachers out there and we are told in Scripture that there will be false teachers out there. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3 through three. But there were also false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying, if I can get my page turned over here, there we go, 
even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. There are false teachers in this world. And so what do we need to do? Well, we need to test what it is we hear. We need to test what it is we hear. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I think of the Bereans when I think of this. They, they listened to everything that Paul said and they made sure that what he said was true. And we have an obligation as believers to take the things that we hear regardless of where you hear it, and to look at it in accordance to Scripture. Don't just take what I say as gospel, but look at what it says in Scripture. The people you hear on TV or read in books, don't just take what they say as gospel, but take what they say to the gospel and see what it has to say. We must test what we hear to make sure that we are living according to the one true gospel. And so what do we need to do to, to test these things, we need to understand the Word of God, to be in the Word of God, and to know the Word of God. We need to study the Word of God. We can't just read it on Sunday mornings and say, okay, I'm good. No, we have to be in it every single day, soaking it up, learning about it, studying about it, knowing what it says, so that we can test what it is we hear. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16-17, it's a good reminder. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, I've said it once, I've said it before, I'll say it again. As a matter of fact, I was just telling David Farley this yesterday. And I live by the belief that if you ever, ever, ever hear me say something and you look in Scripture and you say, man, Bobby, that just doesn't sound biblical or that doesn't sound like what the gospel message is, call me out on it. Because here's my thing. I don't know about you. I don't want to stand face to face with God in internal condemnation. I would prefer not to, to make him mad. But we need to know what's out there so that we can test what it is we hear so that we can make sure that we are living according to the one true gospel. And so now we, we know the message, what, what Paul is saying to them. Hey, this is a concern. This is dangerous. What it is you're turning away from. And so now he's going to talk about why he's saying this. Why is he presenting this message to them? And it starts in verse 10. He says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And you all know how much I love Paul, right? I'm a big fan of the Apostle Paul. Um, and one of the things I love about the Apostle Paul is he's honest. He's an honest guy. He doesn't, you don't have to wonder what is Paul thinking. No, he, he tells you. And Paul says, here, listen, 
I'm not trying to win the approval of men because, see, that was an argument that people were making against Paul, that what Paul is speaking, what Paul is teaching, what Paul is saying is trying to gain more followers. It's not about the message. It's about him trying to bring more followers to him. And we know that with Paul, that is simply not the case. That's not what, we're, what Paul is worried about. No, Paul is worried about pleasing God. Above man, it's all about pleasing God. Warren Wiersbe once shared the story of a, a time when D.L. Moody was preaching in England and a worker came to him while he was out on the platform and, and told him that a very important nobleman had come into the hall. And you know, the idea was, hey, this person's really important. You might want to say something that'll, that, that he'll want to hear. And Moody simply replied, may the meeting be a blessing to him. And he preached every word that he had already written down. You see, he wasn't trying to impress anybody. He wasn't trying to please somebody's ears. No, he was simply telling the truth that he knew from the Gospel. And that was Paul's motive, to simply tell people what God had told him to say. And he was trying to please God, not man. Let Maybe that should be an important lesson to us. You see, the truth is, not everybody's going to like what you have to say. To be a follower of Jesus means to preach the truth and to preach Christ. And sometimes people just don't want to hear what you have to say because what you have to say goes against what they want to do, how they want to live. And sometimes people aren't going to want to hear your words. But we preach anyway because it's not about pleasing man, it's about pleasing our Father. Then of verses 11 through 24, he says this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Sicily. I was personally known to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Why is Paul so concerned with the fact that these people are turning and leaving to this way of life that they just left, this legalism, this false gospel? Why, are they, why is Paul so worried about this? Well, I think the reason is because of anybody, Paul understands grace. 
He understands grace better than most. He recounts his life and his transformation here. We know that he was a Jew, a very well-learned Jew. He was excelling and advancing in Judaism. He was the top of the top. He was educated under the, of the wisest of the wise. He was going places. And yet, here's the thing, on a road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, we see God set him apart and use him. And what does he do? He goes and he preaches the gospel and God changes lives through him. And so you see in the story why he cares so much because his life was once going down the wrong road. Even though it seems like he was going places, he was going down the wrong path. He was persecuting the church. He was having people killed. He was going in the wrong direction and he found grace. Paul understands well what God's grace looks like. And I love what he says about himself in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. Paul, so honest about himself, I do not even deserve this title of apostle because of what I've done, but it is because the grace of God that I am what I am. And this grace in Paul's life, it swelled up in him to the point where all he wanted to do was go and share the gospel. All he wanted to do was point people to the truth. And that's what he did. He went every preaching the gospel, working as hard as possible to make sure people heard what God had done for them. The grace of God pushed him to do everything he could to make him known, to make God known. It was because of the grace of God that Paul was where he was. And here's where I want us to land this morning. It is by God's grace that we are where we are. It is by God's grace that we are where we are. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. In Romans 3.24, And all are justified freely by His grace through redemption that came through Christ Jesus. You see, this morning, it is by God's grace that we are healed. It is by God's grace that we are saved. It is by God's grace that we share His Word. It is by God's grace that we are where we are this morning. If you have given your life to Him and you follow Him, it is by God's grace that you can say that you are saved this morning. It is by God's grace that we are where we are. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they come up, maybe you are here this morning and maybe and you have forgotten God's grace. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never received God's grace. And if that's the case this morning, I pray that you would do so.
It's not anything you can work for. It's not anything that you earn. It's something freely given. His unmerited favor, that unmerited, unwarranted gift that He has given to us. Or maybe you are here this morning and you've just gotten off track and you have been listening to all these things around you and maybe you've just gotten off track and you just need to spend some time talking with God. And if that's the case, I pray that you would do so. Spend some time just going to Him. Man, there is one true gospel. And I would encourage you this week, be in God's Word. Study God's Word. Know God's Word. Don't just read it this morning and put it on your shelf. Be in God's Word every single day. Remember, there's one true gospel. And also remember this. It is by the grace of God that we are where we are. That we can believe in Him. That we can give our life to Him. That we can serve Him. It's because of the grace that He has poured down on us. If you're here this morning and you have a decision to make or you just need to spend time in prayer, I pray that you would do so as we stand and we sing. I have decided